ad watchers. We are attorneys at the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs, a team with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. I'm LaToya Sutton. And I'm Eric Yunus. To make sure advertisers can back up what they are telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value, we put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back to another episode of The Ad Watchers, NAD's podcast that gives a view into how our organization reviews claims and applies advertising law. If you missed any of our previous episodes, don't forget to check them out later. They are available wherever you are listening to this. Hi, Latoya. What are we talking about today? Eric, today we're going to be talking about consumer perception surveys. Loyal listeners will remember back in the first season, we had an episode called What Does It Mean to Have a Reasonable Basis Standard? And we mentioned in that episode that advertisers might use a reliable consumer survey to help NAD deduce the reasonable takeaway or takeaways from an ad. And we promised we would discuss these surveys in more detail in a future episode. So we are now making good on our promise. Additionally, we are bringing in a distinguished guest, Professor Joel Steckel, who's going to talk to us a little bit later about consumer perception surveys. So let's jump right in. I think first we should let our listeners know that this is not intended to be an exhaustive or comprehensive how-to on how to put together a consumer perception survey, but let's, let's start with the very basics. What are consumer perception surveys and when might a party want to use one? We're not talking about kinds of surveys that may support an advertising claim, but rather just those that help determine what consumers' takeaways are from advertising. These are the surveys so that, you know, they have a few parts. You get your instructions, you get some consumers together, you give them instructions, you show them some ads, and you ask some questions that either directly or indirectly are aimed at getting to the answer of what are the reasonable takeaways in an advertisement. Yeah, companies, they might want to conduct a survey like this when they are doing ad development because they want to try to identify the appropriate message or messages being conveyed by proposed ads. It's a good thing to do even before you get caught up in an NAD challenge or litigation or anything like that. It's just something to make sure that while you're doing your claim development, your ad is actually conveying the message that you intend for it to convey. So if you're an advertiser and a competitor has filed an NAD challenge and you're before NAD and you're the advertiser and you've done a consumer perception survey, you submit it to NAD, NAD doesn't have to do any more work, right? Is that right, Latoya? <laughs> yeah, I wish it were that simple. You know, sometimes on this podcast, we say that the concept is easy, but the execution is difficult. But when it comes to consumer perception surveys, you know, the execution can be difficult, but even some of the basic concepts involved can be pretty difficult to grasp at times. There are just so many things that can go wrong with survey design and execution. 
What we're going to focus on today and where advertisers run into a lot of problems is making sure that the survey has been reliably conducted and that it's being used effectively. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, survey design basics and then how to use them effectively at NAD. To use a survey effectively at NAD, it is important to be thoughtful about what your survey design is because we are going to examine it critically. It is evidence, like any other evidence, and this is evidence that is to elicit answers about what consumers' perceptions are. And this is where experts can be useful because they can help us criticize the reliability survey or, or explain why it is, in fact, reliable. And if, it's, if we find that the survey is not reliable, we don't credit it and then uh, step into the shoes of the reasonable consumer to determine the message is reasonably conveyed, just, just as we do as if uh, there hadn't been a survey. Sometimes we reach the same result as the survey did, and sometimes we don't. Yeah, it really just depends on, you know, the quality of the information that we're being given and what NAD attorneys determine is the reasonable takeaway. Just to give our listeners a quick rundown of some of the things that NAD frequently looks at when we're reviewing cases involving consumer perception surveys, we're just going to go through some of the big points, starting with whether the survey has an appropriate universe and a representative sample. You know, if you are doing national advertising and you've only surveyed people that live in the New York City area. Is that a problem? Is that going to be relevant to the way that they perceive part of your ad? Or if you only surveyed women over the age of 65, is that representative of your market and your intended audience? And how might that affect the answers that they give to the survey questions? Another thing that we're going to look at is whether you have a well-designed questionnaire. You know, we're going to actually look at all the different components of the questionnaire, starting with the instructions, which seems kind of deceptively easy, like, hey, fill out this survey. No, even the instructions that participants have been given can lead to controversy. And now we see, since many of the perception surveys are, are conducted, online get instructions about how to simulate the experience of buying a product in a store and looking at the label. And for instance, we've said that in an online survey, under the right circumstances, an an instruction to the consumer looking online to say, tell the consumer, you know, view the package as you would look at it in the store. And we've said that that's okay. We're also looking at the the way that the questions in the survey are asked, whether you start with open-ended questions or close-ended questions matters. And and NAD has said multiple times that open-ended questions to determine the messages that are taken away from the ad are, are superior than starting with 
closed-ended questions and that a progression from open-ended kind of broad questions to increasingly focused questioning is a better approach because you're probing for implied messages. You're probing for what a consumer is perceiving. And when you have very closed, focused questions, there is an increasing potential for bias because there might be something in those questions that leads the consumer to a certain answer. So again, the design, the way that you ask your questions is important. And then right following on that is the actual format of the question, again, that you're asking non-leading questions because there's a concept of demand effects that comes into play and demand effects are basically anything in the survey that unintentionally influences the respondents beliefs about appropriate behavior, which in turn will affect the way they respond in the survey. So for example, if you start with open-ended questions and then go to closed-ended questions, but you ask basically the same question three times in a row. Hey, what does the ad say about this specific concept? Then you ask anything else about this specific concept conveyed? And does it say this about this specific concept? By the third time, the participant is starting to figure out, hey, there's something, you're looking for something about this term or visual element, and I should say something because you want something from me there. And so that's going to be a problem. You know, you can't just kind of go in and say, hey, look at, let me draw a circle (laughs) around something and ask, hey, what do you think about this? Because maybe, maybe the participant would never have noticed that element unless you pointed it out. And now you have, and they know that you want them to say something. So they're going to come up with something to say, and, and that's going to be a problem. Some of the other things that often come up at NAD when we look at consumer perception surveys is the use of a proper control cell. The control is used to mimic a test ad that excludes the hypothesized message conveyed. We look at the use of an appropriate survey stimulus. Uh, I mentioned earlier the instructions about looking at a package as you would in a store. Part of that being appropriate may or may not be the timing that you have to look at the package. You can't give the consumer too much time or too little time to look at the stimulus. So it has to be Uh, It has to be fairly and accurately viewable in a manner that reasonably reflects realistic marketplace conditions, including exposure time. And data has to be analyzed with accepted practices. One of the issues we see a lot of, and uh, we often see disputes over how responses are, are coded. We've seen instances where seemingly contradictory responses end up coded the same in the results. And that can be a problem, uh, especially when you have one kind of response that may be illustrative of there being a misleading or confusing message and another kind of response that it does not convey a misleading or confusing message and they end up getting coded the same way. So, So we've seen that before as a problem. 
Right. And just to add another layer of complication onto this, we often have competing experts arguing about things such as whether those answers have been accurately coded. But also we sometimes have two surveys because, uh, you know, a challenger might bring in a rebuttal survey. So now we have competing expert opinions and we have two surveys that reach differing conclusions about the reasonable takeaways. And NAD just has to do what we usually do. We look at the surveys, we weigh the critiques of the experts on both sides and, and find which one we believe is more credible. And we might not find either one reliable. There might be flaws in both surveys. It's very typical, particularly when the survey is being done to kind of defend or, or to find a certain message is conveyed. It can color the design sometimes. So we just have to really look at these very critically. And then finally, the results. What are we looking for in the results of the survey? Uh, while there's no hard and fast rule as to the percentage necessary to prove consumer confusion in a consumer perception test, the courts, the FTC, and NAD have consistently held that approximately 20% or above has been considered adequate. Now, I think this would be a great time to bring out our special guest. Joining us today is Professor Joel Steckel. Professor Steckel is a marketing professor at the Stern School of Business at New York University and also the Vice Dean for Doctoral Education. Professor Steckel has been with NYU for more than 20 years, and his primary research areas of interest include marketing research, marketing and branding strategy, approaches for one-to-one marketing, managerial decision processes, and methodologies for measuring consumer performance and behavior. He's published multiple books and articles on these subjects, and we are really excited to have him with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Eric. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We're so happy to have you here. And, you know, we really just want to get into this conversation because we have so many things we want to talk to you about. So let's start kind of big picture. Consumer surveys are notoriously difficult to get right. And we want to kind of pick out some insights for our audience. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your work in this area and, you know, what your overall philosophy is when it comes to survey design? Sure. Well, I view surveys, consumer surveys that are involved in NAD proceedings or litigation as pieces of social science. Their studies of, of how people behave in certain contexts. And that's really what social science is. I am a trained academic, trained in, in social science. And I was a journal editor for six and a half years. So I applied the same standards to constructing and evaluating consumer surveys of deceptive advertising that I did when I was evaluating manuscripts for journal publication. In other words, do they pass muster? Are they satisfactory according to a peer review standard? And there are three criteria I bring to bear. One is construct validity. Construct validity refers to whether or not a measure that is obtained in a survey measures what it is supposed to measure. 
The second is internal validity. And that refers to whether or not the survey tests, in particular in the test control framework, what it is supposed to test. And third is external validity. And Eric talked about this a little bit earlier. Does the behavior exhibited in the survey reflect marketplace conditions? Now, any study, any survey is not going to get a perfect score on all three criteria. If one has to be sacrificed and one is always sacrificed, it has to be external validity. If a measure doesn't measure what it's supposed to measure or a test doesn't test what it's supposed to test, at least in the context of a survey, then the researcher has nothing. Then it's up to the NAD and third parties, and in my experience, the audience of a journal, to establish or to judge whether or not the behavior exhibited in the study mirrors that would be exhibited in the real marketplace. So when we have parties discussing and arguing over a survey, a lot of attention is paid to the ads and questions. But before you even get to that, there's a lot of work that goes into the actual execution of the survey, specifically the population of consumers that are recruited to participate. How do you go about assembling a panel for a survey? What what are you thinking about? Well, the first two things I'm thinking about are who is likely to see the ad in question and is it going to affect their behavior and whose behavior would it most likely affect? And those are usually judgment calls. It's important to realize that a sample that is used in a survey must represent a target universe. It doesn't have to mirror the target universe. So in in the preamble, uh, LaToya talked about issues such as, does it matter that you had all people from New York when the commercial was a national commercial? Well, the answer is maybe, maybe not. It depends on whether people in New York would interpret or could possibly interpret the messages explicit or implied in a different way. So to give you a specific example, if it was a ad for snowblowers, people in Minnesota are likely to interpret the ad differently than people in Florida. Mm-hmm. But if it was an, for an ad for shampoo, perhaps not. So again, this is the role of the expert in making the judgments of what is representative of the target universe. Many studies I see equate the universe with the sample, and that's not the case. That's not true. The sample is the group of people who you're doing the study on. The universe is the group of people who you want to project the results to. And as we've moved from the traditional intercept survey to now mostly internet-based surveys, has, how has that influenced surveys? What are, what are the new challenges associated with that? Well, before I describe the challenges, I think that there are a lot of benefits. First of all, they're a lot less expensive, and they're a lot quicker to do. 
The challenges, I think, are relatively few and far between. It depends on whether the communication involves some kind of tactile relationship with the product in question or with the communication in question. For example, if the touch, feel, or smell of an ad, such as might exist in a magazine scratch-off, is important, that becomes a challenge. But doing things online gives you the opportunity to, to actually show a more varied experience of something that's video. And it allows you, through the use of panel companies, to get a, a sample that is arguably more demographically representative of the target market. Whereas if you do an intercept, you're a prisoner of who's shopping in the mall that day. When we look at surveys at NAD, we really specifically often get conflicting arguments about the control or the control ad in the survey. Some people argue that the control has either changed too many elements or it hasn't changed enough elements to really isolate the supposed conveyed message. What are some of the things that you think about when you're designing a control? Because we often get kind of uh, the representation that it's more of an art than a science when it comes to designing a proper control ad. Do you have thoughts on that? I do. And I'll say by it, it's both an art and a science, but there is an underlying guiding principle. The control has to be as similar to the original ad as possible, but for the allegedly offending or deceptive element of that original ad. The more things that are changed in an ad, the harder it is to establish a single causal element for any misperceptions that the respondents may have. So ideally, the difference between a a control ad and the originally allegedly offending ad should be in one and only one element. Now, there are complaints, many complaints that suggest that there isn't just a single element that is offending that the offenses occur throughout the entire ad campaign. Well, when that's the allegation, then that makes things very, very difficult for an expert or someone designing a survey because there's no way the expert can control for the entire campaign, for everything. So I worked on a case once, well, recently, where... The alleged deception was that the brand name, the color of the packaging, every single claim on the packaging, every single claim in you know, the ad, the use of a Hall of Fame football player in the ad suggested given associations. How do you create a control for that? Because all those elements are assumed to be offending. The only way you could possibly do it is to use multiple controls and eliminate one at a time, and then maybe eliminate two at a time. And that is the only scientific way to isolate what the causal elements of the, of the deception actually are. Any critic who says that 
a survey control should have altered more elements is not really taking into account how you establish causality in a scientific manner. The fewer elements you can change, the better. But the elements you change have to be consistent with the allegations of deception. So that's really interesting. And I have like a couple follow-up questions that immediately come to mind because I'm just wondering, are there, you talked about there being so many allegations of deception in that case that you worked on and you had to isolate them kind of one by one. Are there any things that you just cannot test for? I guess you're saying that you can test for everything if you do it sort of, if you end up parsing it out little by little, but is there just, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm thinking of a case we yeah. had recently where the control ad that the survey expert put forth was an ad that was for a different product. So it was two uh, telecom companies and the challenge ad was for one company. And then the control ad was of a similar nature, the the expert argued, but it was for a different company. And the expert basically argue that there was no way to edit the original ad in a way that removed the offending element because it was so kind of just essential to the advertisement. There's no way to take it out. And so his best solution was to use this other similar, similarly natured ad. But it just seemed to us that that was way too far removed and there's too many, the quintessential too many things have been changed. So are there just some things that if you can't touch them, then basically you can't do a survey about them? Well, it's a great question. And I I understand and agree with everything you said up until the last sentence. Okay. (laughs) uh, Where I think you can do a survey about them, but the one thing you need to realize is that you don't have a control. Okay. What you have is a benchmark. And Mm -hmm. so there's a distinction. A lot of experts, in my experience, use the word control when the appropriate word is a benchmark. And the consumer of the research, in this case, the NAD, evaluates it, recognizing that, that what the survey demonstrates is not a causal relationship. What it demonstrates is a relative relationship. So yes. And so that that also is sometimes you have the difference between a, a control stimulus, a control ad, or a control question. And some experts use that. Control questions are not controls. They're benchmarks. The only way to have a true control is to alter a limited number of elements of the original stimulus. And the control, unless you have a control, you do not prove causality. You can argue it, you may have directional evidence, but an experiment or a study like the one you just described, Latoya, doesn't provide proof, scientific proof. So there's a difference, like there's a difference between control and benchmark, there's a difference between proof and evidence. Evidence is suggested. Proof is proof. 
So let's now talk about responses a little bit. At NAD, we're always interested in reviewing the verbatim responses we get and knowing how the coding was done when reviewing a survey. Sometimes we have experts that are arguing over whether a particular response should have been coded this way or that way. What do you think is important for getting that right? That the experts get out of the process. The experts have clients. The experts are biased. The experts have vested interests. And it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, for them to look at verbatims objectively. So I apply the standards in in my studies that I, I applied and looked for in academic studies, where you remove all bias from the process. So, for example, if you want to have some open ended responses or verbatims coded, you get people who have nothing to do with the study, the client, and don't know what the study's purpose is. So, for example, I will get two independent coders. And so when I work through a research supplier, let's say I work through a research supplier in New York where I live, and that supplier has an office in Washington. I will have the supplier fly up or put two people, two staffers from that office in Washington on a train. And those two staffers are ignorant of who the client is, what the purpose of the study is, etc. They have a coding sheet, they have instructions, and they give their best judgments in an unbiased manner. And if they disagree, I put them together in a room and say, you guys disagreed on this response. You want to talk about it and see if you can come to an agreement. And in the rare case, the very rare case that that fails, I have a third person look at the response. So I think the key to preventing those arguments and eliminating the bias that both sides accuse each other of is to get the experts out of the process and have what I call dummy coders do the coding. That makes a lot of sense. The next thing we wanted to talk about a little bit is NAD attorneys are often left trying to determine deception according to a fairly simplistic calculation of net confusion. That's that, you know, 20% or above threshold that we mentioned earlier. But that can be pretty tricky, even if we say there's no hard and fast rule, then we still get that. 20% as a rule of thumb, and it's hard to kind of move away from it when the study shows 19% (laughs) net confusion. And where is the real line then? Are, Are there other approaches you think that might give NAD more insight into the state of deception when it comes to reviewing these surveys? Let me say this, that all research whether it's research on deceptive advertising, on advertising response, on consumer preferences, etc. All research is really an input into a decision maker's decisions. 
phrase that one of my professors in graduate school said used to repeat over and over and over again. The purpose of research and surveys, et cetera, is to provide qualitative insight from quantitative studies. So that's where your job comes in. That's where your experience comes in. So I agree with you. It's ridiculous to think that 19.9% is different than 20.1%. It's laughable. But I think the key to resolving that is keeping the perspective that you are making the decision, not the study. If the study were making the decision, why would we need you? (laughs) So the study is one input into the decision that you will ultimately render. So let's, let's wrap up. We can't get to all of the potential pitfalls that we see with surveys, but uh, Professor, what is the most common mistake you see companies making when it comes to survey design? Well, especially survey design that is used in um, claim interpretation or or litigation of of any kind. It's not pre-testing the survey. That's the biggest mistake. And there are several experts out there who eliminate pre-tests to cut costs. Well, they may cut costs in the short run, but not in the long run. There is a well-known treatise called Asking Questions, written by three respected scholars, Norman Bradburn, Seymour Sudman, and Brian Wansing. And they talk about pretesting in the following way. They say that among the three of them, they have conducted well over a thousand surveys in their career. And these are three very well-respected social scientists. None of them can think of an example where they got it right the first time. And so the biggest mistake that people make, in my view, is not pre-testing the survey to find out how respondents would interpret the question, whether they can guess what the survey's purpose is, who the client is, etc. So I have actually rebutted surveys in the past by doing pretests of the executed survey myself to show that respondents were confused by the question. So if I were to give some advice to the listeners here, if you have an expert or considering hiring an expert that says we don't need a pretest, run in the other direction. Because that survey is extremely likely to make a mistake. There will be a flaw in the survey, and it's not worth the cutting of costs of executing a survey. Well, that is certainly a profound point for us to end on. And Eric and I just want to thank you so much for joining us. That was a great discussion for both us and our listeners. I'm here writing notes (laughs) to make sure I can remember some of these things that you've told us the next time I'm looking at a survey because, you know, that was just, that was really, really insightful. So again, thank you so much. This was really great. Well, Thank you, too. I had a blast. 
Well, yeah, that was a great discussion. I learned so much in such a short period of time. Yes, and and I agree. The professor gave us a lot to think about the next time we are reviewing a survey uh, at NAD. Let's wrap up with some tips and takeaways for the listeners. Eric, what's on your mind after this discussion? So I think we've seen that investing in doing a survey is certainly not the end of the story, no matter how time-consuming or, or how expensive a survey may be. The details still need to be right. Doing a survey is not just a formality. This is actual science, and it should be approached as such. And one of the important pieces is uh, the format and formulation of the questions, as they may tend to bias the results, or they could potentially bias the results. And that makes sense, because you are measuring people's perceptions instead of their actions. In the field of surveys, it makes the formulation of questions even more important. Poorly formulated questions, even if you get everything else right, could be a flaw. Right. And then also just thinking about some of the things that Professor Steckel shared with us today, I think it really kind of comes down to, as you were saying, treating these pieces of evidence as science, and then also kind of taking the subjectivity out of survey interpretation, kind of not involving the expert in the coding and some of the other points to take some of the subjectivity out of these surveys when using them at NAD. I feel like sometimes we get surveys and there's this impression that because these are about subjective consumer perceptions, there's also some subjectivity with in the survey as well. And really every part of your survey needs to be backed up by objective evidence in that this is the correct way to test for this hypothesis. And it's not just what one expert thinks is the right way. It should be following what using that peer review standard, it's, it's what the field would believe is appropriate. And so to move away from too narrow of a view when it comes to designing this, these types of surveys is important. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Ad Watchers. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and thank you again to our guest, Professor Joel Steckel. Join us next month when we'll be discussing cosmetic advertising. As always, you can head over to our website, bbbprograms.org to learn more about what we do here at the National Advertising Division or any of our other self-regulatory programs. That's all for this episode. See you next time.